Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to Indian Religions, a podcast here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. And today, for the inaugural recording of 2022, I have a very special guest for you, Dr. Lori L. Patton, who's Professor of Religions and President of Middlebury College and former President of the American Academy of Religion. Lori, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's so wonderful to be here. And thank you for all you're doing for our field. Uh, you're you're welcome. It's it's surreal. This started as a, a bit of a, a favor in 2018. I did three podcasts, I think, in all of 2018. And then in 2019, it was a bit of a hobby. I did about 25. And with the pandemic, this was my particular quote-unquote war effort to give people content to engage. I did about 16 in 2020. And I don't know how, but I counted this morning. 87 were done in 2021. Wow. And so you you are the podcast's 171st, well, you're the 171st episode, and you are my 160th guest. And I have no idea how any of that happened. I was hoping I could be 108, but that's okay. Well, we'll manage. <laughs> well, <laughs> we'll manage indeed. Um, uh, there are so many, many pieces to your work, to your portfolio, to your career. Uh, but perhaps first, uh, we should talk about your scholarship. Uh, you are a seasoned scholar of uh, South Asian studies of Indian religions. You've authored and edited um, 11 books in the field. Tell us a little bit about your journey of how you got roped into studying all things Indic. Yeah, um, part of the reason why I thanked you in the beginning is because um, I think you contribute and deepen to the collegiality that I find so attractive in the field. And that is interestingly part of the journey. So um, at, as an undergrad, I was a um, Celtic studies and religion major, Celtic studies as a minor. And I think it was an early version of identity formation. Um, not that, you know, we, we have so many interesting conversations about race and reckonings with race in, in America um, and globally these days. So figuring out what it meant to be Scottish or Irish um, was a different project uh, in the 60s and 70s uh, and 80s when I was in college, early 80s, then it certainly would be now. Um, but then um, that was my fascination. And um, I had a very clear sense um, of connection to those places and to those mythologies and um, became um, so interested that I went to the University of Edinburgh to do a um, junior year there and learn Scottish Gaelic and learn more about both Scottish and Irish uh, folklore and mythology. 
Um, and in my senior year, I wrote a dissertation on the pilgrimage to sacred springs in um, Ireland and Scotland and the mythology of the sacred well, as well as the um, current folk practices. Uh, and and I, that was the term of art then. I wouldn't use the term folk practices now, uh, but just what people do around wells. And um, so it was very exciting to do that. And um, I fell in love with the idea of mythology and also realized that a lot of folks who wanted to make sense of medieval Irish stories and narratives turn to India. Um, and that is because of the Indo-European paradigm. Um, whether, you know, I've edited a book on the controversies around those paradigms. Um, so however you land there, there are incredibly interesting similarities. You can compare them because they're historically connected. You can compare them because they're interesting comparisons. Um, bottom line is um, I suddenly got involved with all things Indian and particularly sacred rivers um, and as a sort of comparand. And I became so interested in sacred rivers that I um, applied for a fellowship um, that was a travel fellowship that, that my university gave out um, at, at Harvard. And uh, that fellowship led me to go on um, many of the mini pilgrimages in Ireland and Scotland, um, as well as the bigger uh, Yatra sites in, uh, in India. So I spent my first year partly on the back of a motorcycle running around um, with my friends and learning about India that way. And um, otherwise um, being with pilgrims um, at Gangotri, Yamanotri, uh, Kedarnath, Badrinath, um, uh, the source of the Narmada, uh, Kaveri, and so on. It was an incredible year. It still influences me in a number of different ways, although India has changed dramatically um, as a nation and as a culture um, between 1983, 84 and now. Uh, but I still go back to my notes and my interviews and my sitting at the feet with uh, both, um, you know, the, the teachers that were the pilgrims at the wells and um, ponds, as well as Sanskrit teachers from temples. Um, I lived half the year in Benares and focused particularly on those local local wells and ponds. And I never wrote anything about it, which is a very interesting thing. I fell in love with the poetry and the text behind the stories of the Wells and um, ended up then going to Chicago uh, for my PhD and uh, writing about uh, early Vedic mythology um, and uh, looking at the history of how poetic creation occurred. But I think the through line between that year and the many years I've lived in India since then as a textual scholar and now an ethnographer of, of women Sanskritists, which is the, the other big project. Um, I think the through line is listening to how people articulate in a public square their deepest commitments, whatever those are. And that means that, that the conversation that I'm going to have walking to Kedarnath in 1984 um, with a woman who just lost her husband and is doing this as a form of honoring him is the same as the conversation I'm going to have with a very nervous, you know, um, student who is just learning how to pronounce um, something in a, um, in a Hindi textbook um, with is the same as um, 
listening to someone who's not used to being vulnerable, um, who's a very well-known scholar, suddenly articulate a vulnerability. All of it is about allowing that deepest voice to come out with dignity um, and allowing myself to be um, a, a learner uh, in those conversations. So if there's a through line, <laughs> that's what it is. And that's a very long answer, which you're probably going to have to edit. But <laughs> Well, we don't censor, we don't edit, perhaps if the call drops or a shelf falls over or something, we'll edit that out. Yeah. But um, it's always about the scenic route on these podcasts and the questions are always meant to be generative uh, rather than, you know, limiting in some way. So so yeah. whatever comes is perfect. Um, and then I just riff on that in terms of, you know, the number of things that 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 that, that fire in my brain, most of which I, I, I don't share, thankfully, otherwise we never have enough time. Um, but the one thing that really strikes me is, first of all, thank you for your compliment at the outset, your compliment about the contribution to collegiality. That's very important to me, you know, some yoga, just having a space for anyone who studies all things Indic in, you know, in an Edic paradigm in a way that we can all make sense of. Is welcome on the podcast and the vast majority of people get that but every once in a while i get a, su- a surprise response from an invitee because well why would i invite them because i've had so and so on the podcast and there's this faction and there's this sub-discipline and this and this is a neutral space the guest has got um so thank you very much for that compliment and that compliment bespeaks a second point that i wanted to make the point about holding space for people and emotional intelligence and that point about really so much of what you describe sounds not dissimilar from a coaching paradigm or a high touch teaching context where you're holding space for that person foremost, first and foremost, uh, for the um, intellectual insights and the conversations and the, and the discussions and the deliberations and the theorizations to ensue. But the first step is just that holding of space. Um, Does that resonate with you? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's why, um, you know, I was thinking about this, the book that I just published in uh, 2019 about the controversies in the late 90s, um, late 80s and early 90s that still are with us in different forms. I think, you know, part of what I discovered uh, becoming um, a scholar of India um, was uh, two things, the absolute necessity for humility and a colonial, pre-colonial, colonial and post-colonial time frame and context. Um, and um, that's going to be interpreted in different ways um, by different people, but constant discernment about that, which I think is related to what you're saying. Um, and the second is that the um, kind of collegiality of conversation that I felt most South Asia scholars of South Asia have wherever they live um, was very powerful to me. Um, I almost, when I came back from India the first time, I almost became um, a uh, therapist and uh, counselor. And I was 23 and I said, look, the only thing, I can't bring wisdom to any of these conversations. I can, a therapeutic conversation, I can bring skill maybe and a nice personality maybe, but I didn't feel that I could do anything to really help anyone. But what I could do very straightforward is say, yeah, maybe I've read a couple more books about this. And therefore, when we're in a classroom, there is something incredibly powerful and compassion generating about two people looking out in the same direction. And I believe there's a new um, school of therapy. Actually, a friend of mine is a psychologist told me about this, where people actually sit 
on the couch side by side and talk and look in another look in the same direction rather than at each other, um, which I think is really powerful. It's you know the longer interest in sambad, you know, you said you know atiti deva bhava. Thank you. That's a lovely thing. But I think sambad in many ways sambad deva bhava. You know that there's a there's a way in which um, the focus on how to curate a good conversation is, um, and I mean a transformative or generative one, is incredibly hard. And I felt that people in South Asia in general, whether I was living in Varanasi or whether I was living in Pune, wherever it was, even with factions, even with you know, all the stuff that, that occurs that is so hard, um, in, in, in our field and other fields about who speaks, um, who has voice, how we address some of the racial politics in our field, the caste politics and so on, there still is this commitment somehow, some way um, and uh, to, to keep talking. And so I think what was interesting for me about you know, having this commitment is First of all, you fail every day at really allowing space for another. Um, and that is hard sometimes because you do have this ideal and you know you never really need it. Um, but the second is, I think that's part of why I became interested in the public sphere is, and religion in the public sphere is because, and thinking about Habermasian theory is, and, and the critiques of Habermas and new theories that emerge around the public square is, is there a way for people to bring their commitments, religious commitments and commitments about transcendence to a public square, which has been, and in my view, still should be governed by reason, a form of reason that may look different than the reasoning of the 20th century, say. But that to me is that same question again, you know, of how can people bring their deepest voices and their biggest commitments to um, any kind of conversation and commitment to any kind of public. So I think um, I think you're right. Um, there is that through line. I also think that there is a way, the fragility of that public square, whether it's you and me right now, which is a form of a public, even if we were just hanging out and not doing a podcast, um, is is so real, you know, and and I think that this is part of why, you know, the work as an administrator is one of the reasons the work of an administrator is interesting to me is how do you create those conditions for public engagement? You're going to fail spectacularly every day and sometimes, you know, big ways, but creating that commitment and staying in that commitment of nurturing an extremely fragile thing um, is something I find very powerful and important and, you know, is, is, good trouble as, as John Lewis says, or, or, um, important work. Um, so I, I don't know if that answers your question, but, um, I, I totally agree with what you're saying about that sense of giving space to another. Always a scenic route as, as mentioned, and, um, you raised a number of points that I hope to touch on. Um, I'll do it in perhaps reverse order in my brain. The thing you said last about your work at Middlebury and what that's like, do you want to say a quick word about what Joyut administration, um, I mean, there, there are mighty fine scholars who may not be fine administrators and vice versa, yeah. but, you know, how did you get involved in administration? Is it sort of a way of being? Is it something that you were called to, that you were trained over the years? Um, and touch on maybe your, your role at Middlebury. And then 
maybe segue into what you're describing as the, the function in terms of um, administration's relationship to the public sphere and public engagement and, and, and the importance thereof in scholarship. Yeah, um, Good, great. great. I love the dimensionality of your, of your question. Um, so a couple thoughts. Um, yes, I, there were two really transformative conversations that I'll never forget. One was with another person and the other was with myself. Um, the other, the first one with the other person was what that 23, I had no idea that 23 and 24 was gonna be such a, well, really 22 to 24. Um, and there are studies actually in education that show that the really tough and transformative and dangerous and amazing years um, in early adulthood, one is the first year in college and the first, the other is the first year out of college. So for me, it would be the first couple of years out of college, but when I was working um, as an uh, assistant and an intern in a center in uh, psychology and religion, uh, one of my mentors said to me, what are you doing going, you know, applying to grad school and, you know, Celtic and Sanskrit and, you know, what, what is this? And I said, well, I just really want to know kind of the nature of poetic inspiration and in these cultures. And they have such really amazing ideas about colloquy and um, poetic contests and things. And, and, um, and she said, well, um, you have such a mainstream personality, you know, why, why do you want to live in that very obscure world? And I said, well, I just am driven by the questions. And she said, um, please come talk to me when you're 50 and let me know what you're doing, because I predict you will not be doing that. Um, and it, it was a binary that I always resist. I don't like binaries at all. My husband is very annoyed with me because I'm always decoupling de and, and ambiguating and all sorts of things, his, his binaries. But um, I remember that really vividly when I was 50. Um, and it was also because we were in the process of, you know, being a psychologist would be more mainstream. That was the word she used, but I think what she meant was more connected, public, don't go into a corner, you know, dusty corner. And first of all, neither Sanskrit nor Irish are dusty corners in any way, but something really powerful. Uh, but um, bottom line was, I thought about that a lot and said, you know, I still have to do this, but it's hard when a mentor says, what are you doing? You know? And so, um, uh, and, then, and then when I was 50 was the year that I became Dean at uh, Duke, Dean of Arts and Sciences at Duke. And so that was a really interesting moment because, of course, I never forgot that conversation. And she was right. You know, here I was. Um, so I think the way I would put it is um, there are a couple things. I think even in grad school and then beyond, I think I always found incredible reward in making systems better. Um, I am not, you know, I would be really B minus CFO, you know, as a, a, a chief financial officer. Um, I'd be a B minus, um, you know, chief information officer. Um, but the synthetic vision of what could be and, and a focus on process and a focus on um, how to build a different kind of institution and the humility to hire people who are way smarter than you are to get it done those are things that I've always, you know, 
been able, had, and the field of South Asia has really taught me how to do that. And I've always loved creating better community. And every time, you know, I ran a good meeting or, you know, connected with someone and helped them do something in their career, you, you nailed it. It's a coaching perspective. It's incredibly um, rewarding and exciting. So um, a couple of people approached me for administrative work very early on in my career. And I said, no, because I wanted to do a lot more work. Uh, but then the second conversation that I had with myself was um, I'd done a lot of supportive university-wide work at, at Emory, uh, where I was for 14 years, very transformative place for me, building the South Asia program. Um, and, that, and, and I was then center head of the Center for Faculty Development. And that's all about supporting people in their faculty work. And I absolutely loved it. And then moving from that to being Dean, um, I would never be an administrator in a place that would not allow for true intellectual leadership. It's the only way I know how to lead and accept a scholar as a leader. I'm not leaving the field of South Asia every single time I you know, was offered a job, I would say, can you, can you manage that? Can you not um, sort of look at me incomprehensibly if I tell you that I'm working on an article, you know, this weekend or, you know, whatever it might be. And so um, uh, the president, then president of Duke said, you, um, we'd love to share the love of learning with you that you clearly have. Can you come and be our dean? And I'm like, that's a good way to offer anyone a job. How wonderful. And of course, I was going to say yes. Um, but at that moment, I said to myself, this was the conversation does the world need my 61st article on early Indian religion? And the answer is absolutely yes, it does. Or do I need to write it? Absolutely yes. Does the world need someone who is gonna try and be a different kind of dean that now college president, which is a totally different kind of kettle of fish in a certain way, um, that will lead um, with a lack of embarrassment about femininity, that will lead with you know, sort of a force for scholarship and intellectual inquiry um, that will lead with understanding higher ed as being one of the few last resources for addressing climate damage, um, that will lead with conflict transformation as um, a liberal art, which is what I deeply believe it should be. Those are, the answer there was, yeah, the world needs that more. Um, and so I, that was a conversation I had with myself. So it wasn't a, no, I'm going to give up scholarship to go and do this. It was, you know, and a, a dear friend of mine, when I was thinking about something very early uh, in my career, he said, you keep creating the binary, but you've already made your decision. You're going to do both. Like, that's your decision. And I thought, wow, like in the hesitancy and I teach this a lot, which is if you're hesitant about something, there's an answer. There's a position. There's a view in that hesitancy. It's not just hesitancy. There's something there. And I realized that my what I didn't like when I was always messing around with my decisions about whether to go into administrative work was um, I didn't like the either or that the world continued to present to me. And so um, I have, of course, I haven't written all the books that that I wanted to write in this period, but I have continued to write and love every minute of it. When I return to scholarship, it's always a garden of delight, um, you know, in the best sense, how could it not be? And um, so, so that's the path. Um, it is a calling um, for sure. It's a spiritual path. You have to, 
you get projected on every day. Um, a lot of times when I do seminars outside of this work, people say, oh, I want you to be my college president. And I say, no, you don't, because I will have made a decision that you will have not liked, you know, and that means that we are going to exist in a relationship of power, which is very hard, hard for me still. Um, and yet I, I wouldn't want to be governed by anybody who didn't have an ambiguous and ambivalent relationship to power, because then it then it becomes about power only. And um, that that is not a good way to lead in, in my view. Um, do I you know, want to go on to be even in more powerful roles, which everyone comes and tells you that's your script for your life? And the answer is, nah, I don't know. I, I want the work to be done. And right now, being an incredibly, you know, being allowed to be the kind of leader that I have been allowed to be, even though it's been incredibly hard, um, at Middlebury is is just you know it's an incredible privilege, um, and I I think about it every day. Um, I think climate change, the opportunity to work on climate change, the opportunity to work on the public sphere, uh, those two things in a liberal arts and sciences context, in a place like Vermont, um, is about as good as it gets for someone like me. So. Uh, I'll stop there. But. It's a little piece of heaven, for sure. Um, when I was first, uh, I I, um, I defended in 2015, and then I was shortlisted for a liberal arts college in America. Uh, I won't say which one. And I thought to myself, this is a little piece of heaven. We don't have these in Canada in quite the same way at all. <laughs> you may have, um, you know, the University of Toronto, there, there's like, I, I, I came from Victoria College, which is yeah. very similar, but it's not quite the same, um, yeah. uh, you know, this sort of uh, high school 2.0 plus big ideas, plus right. community, plus uh, person formation. I mean, it, yeah. it was very appealing. Things shifted in America. So I decided not to venture yeah. south of the border. And that's part of my journey that I'm in the middle of in terms of producing a bunch of scholarship and then teaching, um, building things, organizing, podcasting. But maybe you're preaching to the choir, but it seems to me that um, the, the administration, it's, you're administering to education, mm. to learning. It's administration yeah. of education. So when I spend a bunch of time you know, ripping my hair out if I had any, trying to figure out a website or an online teaching platform or whatever I'm doing. It's why is it being done? I have this online school of Indian wisdom. Why has all that gone into this structure? It's for education. It's so people can teach, people can learn the exchange of ideas. Uh, And so um, I like that you foreground that because I think there, there have been situations where folks have left intellectual pursuit production formally to enter administration but at universities that very much i think well done uh, uh, can and perhaps should be dovetailed like always being mindful of what the primary function is of the kind of administration you're doing and in your case i I imagine it'll always be pertaining to um, the production of knowledge learning and education in general Yes, I I think that's right. Um, I want to just respond with a couple of thoughts. The first is, you know, what you're saying before about the little piece of heaven. Um, The line between utopia and dystopia is extremely thin. And and therefore, and and my communications person, who I absolutely love, he plays several bluegrass instruments and um, 
you know, is a really creative, thoughtful person and um, builds and unbuilds motorcycles and houses and things and is our, our communications person. And um, he, the first thing he said is about liberal arts and sciences in general, but particularly about the way they get presented and the way they present themselves, right, is heavenly views. He says, no more heavenly views, you know, because there's always like the sun in the mountains. And because Middlebury is so in such a beautiful place, you can't help it. Like every time I walk out, I say to, I send him a little snapshot and say, oh my God, there's another heavenly view. How are we going to get away from this? Um, and, but the, the bottom line is I also am partly because of who America now is a different demographic entirely. We talk about it all the time. Um, you can feel, see it in our own field. There is a, um, Middlebury's always been urban in that sense, whether it wanted to admit it or not, you know? And so now we're in this, you know, a college with an incredible tradition, you know, amazing leadership coming to embrace and be something other than um, what it has been for the last 200 years. It's an incredibly important moment and it's had moments of direct disruption as many colleges and universities have, but I think moving into a, and I, I don't know if you know Eddie Glaude, um, he was also head of the AAR and he became a friend and we had him come and talk uh, after his wonderful uh, book on uh, James Baldwin. And um, uh, we were talking about this very question um, because it's partly the expectation of a, of a certain kind of heaven and community. And we are really learning new forms of community and, and we're not, you know, we're, we, we're, we're practicing all the time. We're not in any way in a space where it's easy or fun. And sometimes it's really, really hard um, and depressing and, ugh, you know, sort of a slog. And he, you know, I said, how do you, how do you figure out beauty in this context of, you know, people really trying to shift and change and um, trustees, you know, beginning to have diversity and inclusion conversations and, trying to figure out whether they agree or disagree. And you know, I'm really proud of them because they're making a commitment and having doing the work. And, um, and I said, what do you do about these heavenly views? And I quoted my communications director again. And, and Eddie said, you know, what would it look like if the landscape was even more beautiful because, and, and the world around us, you know, the physical world because of our different way of telling our history. Um, and I absolutely love that. And I think that's part of, um, you know, what we're also trying to figure out. Um, so, so I think, um, I, I think you're right in many ways. And, and, you know, my friend Ibu Patel talks about, and many people do, but I like it because he's somewhat, he's in an NGO. So he's not, you know, in the academy in the same way. He said, you know, liberal arts and sciences are the best. And those liberal arts and sciences colleges are the best one of the best contributions that America's made. I, I think your point is, is an accurate one. Um, and how can we continue to be that contribution, right? Because that's going to look really different, you know, in the 21st century, it already does. So um, that's just a sort of brief comment on, on what you were saying. Um, I also think, though, that, um, you know, what you were saying about administration and administering to, um, you know, I, there every... I'd say year, there's another um, uh, article in the Chronicle of higher ed or inside higher ed or some other higher ed oriented magazine 
a publication that talks about how impossible it is to be a college president. And there's that, you know, military folks who are there for two years. And I'm like, no, there's no way I could do this job in the military. It was much easier, you know? And so I think, I think there's a temperament that also South Asia, the field of South Asia at its best has really taught me around um, absorbing toxicity. One of my, um, and learning how to do that in a way that keeps you going and that can still be transformative. So Nila Kanta, my, you know, I have a little um, picture of the turning of the ocean myth right near my desk because, um, not here, but at home, uh, because it's about swallowing. Anything creative is gonna have something toxic that emerges. And if you do anything that's creative, people can get mad. If it's genuinely creative, people are gonna get mad. They're gonna think your motivations are wrong, whatever they're gonna do. And I often tell my team, you know, here that I tell them the story of the turning of the ocean and, and also that, you know, your job is to have the blue throat right now. Your job is to be Shiva and swallow that poison. And everyone looks sort of startled. I'm like, no, this is like an ancient way of thinking about creativity. And we need to remember that, you know, this is something that people have known um, and that to expect it you know, as part of what change means, a part of what creativity means and so on. So I've always been interested. I've always wanted to do like a paramyth, um, which is about whether, um, what the conversation between Shiva and the gods was like, like, could you do an extended Sambad after Shiva swallowed the poison, right? Because that's my life, right? Which is, you know, how do you continue to administer because here's another little toxic, nasty gram that comes your way. And you still have to, you know, keep your eye on the prize. It's daily, right? It's a, it's a world creating activity that is daily. Um, so someday I will do that. Like I'm going to write my little, you know, find short my, story. Right. My short story. Right. Yeah. On, on Shiva. Um, that's one of my favorite um, uh, um, myths to teach. I mean, I, 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 I often I teach about myths, I teach myths, but I also teach through them, right? And so that, uh, that uh, metaphor or archetype, it's so profound in that Shiva neither spits it out, nor fully swallows it, it doesn't poison him, it doesn't poison the world, he has the yogic attainment to neutralize it, like yeah. to actually stop an arrow midstream, like how yeah. do you do that? I mean, that's, that's really cool. There's so many fascinating threads to what you've said. Um, let me, it, speaking of short stories, rumor has it that creative writing is something that you do and enjoy, and you might even have a couple books of poetry out. How'd that happen? What's that like? Um, so that's the, you know, you can imagine that's a through line of, you know, of that coming to voice and, and how poetic voices happen. And Middlebury has been incredibly um, great place to continue to do that work because of the Breadloaf School of English, as well as the Breadloaf Writers Conference, both of which I get to play in and engage with. And that is truly, again, an incredible privilege. And so, um, so couple thoughts there. Um, first of all, I want to say what a wonderful um, gloss on the churning of the ocean myth, because you're absolutely right. You know, frequently the translations say, you know, he swallows the poison and then you think, okay, well, he completely internalizes the poison, but you're right. He doesn't, there is a yogic power that means that um, it's not as if he becomes the poison, you know, the body that, that the poison overcomes his body. Um, and so I, I love that little 
um, addition, and it actually is um, really good way of thinking about about the story on any number of levels, not just a teaching about Shiva's yoga powers, but also about how we live those myths in, in particular ways or could. Um, so, so in terms of poetic stuff, um, my first book of poems was published in 2003, and it was based on um, trying to make contemporary a lot of Hindu holidays that I um, had experienced and learned about and lived through. Um, and to find a way to create um, dialogue really poetically between the classical and the contemporary, um, particularly the classical Sanskrit sources around both really well-known Hindu holidays like Diwali and then um, less well-known ones. And so um, that was the beginning. Um, I also, several poems occurred to me in Sanskrit and they would be not very good poems in English. So I wrote them first in Sanskrit and then translated myself into English. And by the way, you know, this, as my, one of my teachers in India has frequently told me, like, these are, they're not metrical. They're, you know, they're very simple um, and they're not very good, but once you translate them out into English, they become better. So that was kind of the vehicle. Um, and I realized that my interest in, you know, I didn't want to accept this uh, in life, but it is what I do. And that is, um, I, I like poetic commentary. I like having a structure that then I can comment on poetically. And um, the second book was um, in, in a uh, Jewish vein. It's a part of a, my own journey to Judaism as a, a form of practice um, and um, ended up being commentary on um, the Parshiot, the daily, the weekly readings um, that are in uh, the Torah. And um, they're biblical, they're very biblical, um, but they're also a way of creating, you know, a dialogue between the classical and the contemporary. Um, several of them were in the women's Torah commentary, which was really wonderful and fun. Although we were talking a little bit about different aspects of life and personality. And I remember I had a very dear friend who I was working with in another context who knew me as an endologist. And she said, oh, there's this wonderful poet who has your name, whose work I just came across. She does mostly Jewish stuff. Though. And I was like, no, that would be me. And, and it was really a nice kind of connection to say, you know, here are my two sides and, and, um, uh, let's talk about that. You know, that's sort of a reveal in a way or, or something like that. It was hard at the same time as a conversation, but, um, and then the third book house crossing, which came out in, um, 2018, I think, um, was the structure of a house. It was inspired by Gaston Bachelard's idea that spaces can inform our imagination. And so I was very disciplined in thinking only of, um, artistic, uh, spaces, excuse me, um, architectural spaces like uh, corners or ceilings um, or floors um, or cupolas and so on. And um, I, I had just a really wonderful time doing it as sort of poetic commentary on the architectural structure of a house. And that one, lots of people read, my parents got it in a way that they didn't get the others. Um, and, and people reviewed it. And I was like, thrilled because I thought, okay, wow, I finally found a place that isn't obscure religious, you know, uh, commentary for poetry that five people might appreciate. And, um, and so that was really fun. But the next, the project I'm working on now that I'm absolutely loving to do is um, a, a back 
I would say in the, in the sort of obscure space, but it is where my brain goes. And so I've had to accept that. Um, and that is um, in an area of uh, retelling the Buddha's life in Sanskrit and in English, but not based on um, him, uh, but rather um, a set of uh, narratives, small Sanskrit and English poetic narratives about his effects on the flora and fauna around him. So, and that's a very Buddhist way of thinking about it, right? That, that um, as you think about, uh, there is no original essence of anything. There are only effects of something on another thing. And um, so what would that look like if you wrote a Buddha's life for the Anthropocene, right? If you wrote a Buddha's life that was entirely focused on the effects that he as a human had on the natural world around him. And so I said, to a couple friends, you know, writing friends, I said, I'm really writing a book about talking snails and, and leaves and, you know, so forth. And they said, yep, you are. And, and, um, but, you know, the best poets could do that, you know, um, Ted Hughes's beautiful book on, um, on animals, um, the, the collection of his poetry on animals is incredibly powerful. And there are many, many examples of this. And, and also in, in Indian literature, um, as you know, better than most. And so, um, so it was, it's been really fun. I love doing it. I've sent it to like the best Buddhologists in the world who happen to be friends and they really like it, um, which is very reassuring to me. I'm in the middle of the, the project right now and also sharing it with my non-Buddhist or non-Buddhological friends. And um, they also get it, uh, but it's, you know, it's this really interesting balance. Like how do you tell the story through the poetry so that it's clear that it's about the Buddha and the Buddha's life, but also about his effects um, in the world and in mountains and in forests and um, uh, what would it look the the reason why I mentioned the snail is the the, the poem that focuses on um, his encounter with death uh, the prince Gautama's encounter with death before he goes off to meditate um, is uh, noticing that the way someone is weeping at the burning got his um, uh, the, the, the face has tracks like what he remembers the tracks of a snail uh, look like when they are traveling across a leaf, right? So these tiny little things. And that, you know, Rajasekhar's poetry, um, Sanskrit poetry really inspired me to focus on the tiny detail um, as a form of enlightenment. And I, I do believe that natural processes are forms of enlightenment, if you understand them. Um, and so I'm working a lot with place names in all around the world. Um, uh, and uh, uh, McFarland's work, um, Don McFarland's work on place names is incredibly inspiring to me because he has unearthed place names in so many different areas, particularly in Britain and Ireland, ironically enough, a return to origins, um, that are poems in their own right that are no longer used. And so I'm thinking about learning from place names as forms of enlightenment and then transposing them into the life of the Buddha as a way of telling that life through the natural world. So um, I'm really excited about it. And um, it's really helpful for me as a sort of uh, person in general to, to think about these, these questions and issues this way. So um, uh, I, I'm not a very good poet, but I'm, I'm a sort of uh, person, a poet that people, other poets tolerate. <laughs> so, um, and I really enjoy doing it. So uh, that's, that's kind of where Fantastic. it is. Fantastic. We'll, we'll put the link for, for um, the, the house crossing 
in the podcast notes. Um, maybe I'll ask you one final question. Speaking of coming full circle, um, I was walking out, uh, grabbing coffee, thinking, well, what am I doing today? Oh, yes, I'm interviewing Laurie Patton. Um, oh, yes, the, the, the first and only time that we met we, it was at the 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 uh, undergraduate. I'm sorry, the graduate uh, South Asian Religion Conference at the University of Toronto in 2011. I just started my PhD in Calgary. Came back just for the conference, and I remember very well organized. Uh, Aaron uh, Eric Steinschneider and Aaron Brumbutt, uh, a fantastic conference. And there was this moment where this taxi pulled up out of nowhere, and somehow I knew that in that taxi that was Lori Patton. I'd never <laughs> met her, <laughs> and then as she came out. And, and and was speaking Hindi to the driver. I'm like, that's Lori Patton. <laughs> <laughs> so I remember, okay, I did my tiny part to host you some decade ago. And here we are again, um, hosting you on the podcast. Um, but uh, to my, to my, to my, to my, my shock and, 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 and delight, you agreed to contribute to this visions and revisions volume. That's sort of a, a nod to Piranha Perennis uh, yeah. a generation later. Yeah. Um, uh, coming out probably uh, later this year. Just yeah. one quick note. You're so uniquely poised. Tell us a little bit about, uh, I know this is a tiny question. What have you noticed? What's shifted? I mean, from Piranha Piranha's 1.0 to, to, yeah. to, to, to Visions and Revisions, which, which I'm co-editing with McComas Taylor, what strikes you as having changed? Yeah, um, uh, such a great question. Um, and so I will say briefly, I wish I didn't have to go, and I know you have to go too, but um, I think we were still, Piranha Piranha's, we were still trying to get the Piranha's taken seriously and on the map. And it's not like that project has gone away, but I think a lot of it was, you know, looking at, you can really look at these piranhas in ways that are not just sort of fun books of the medieval period at best, right? And funky Sanskrit and, you know, kind of lesser than classical and place-based, but therefore sort of regional in some weird ways. And then there's the bigger ones that are the Mahapuranas. I mean, the, those are all great, things to learn about the Puranas, but they're not, I don't think they're telling the best story about the Puranas. So I think a lot of the work of Purana Puranas was really to try and move beyond that in some way or other. Um, and then I would say um, the opportunity that you both are taking, you McComas are taking, thank you for doing that, is, is to say, um, first of all, now what is an incredibly important scholarly question to ask in a sort of big synthetic way and gathering people to sort of acknowledge that, but also to think, you know, lived experience, um, which is a term I am ambivalent about for any number of reasons, but um, but it is a powerful idea, right, of, of people who live with piranhas, um, people who read piranhas as a form of living with them, um, those are incredibly important questions that we are better able to ask now. Um, and that's what I'm excited about. That's why, you know, I've been the piece I'm doing for you on Piranhas and Magical Realism um, was, I thought, what a wonderful opportunity because um, I do believe that uh, reading is a form of everyday living and everyday practice. And Therefore, reading Puranas and all of the different levels and registers in which we do is a form of living with Puranas um, as well. And we can assume in a kind of interesting post-colonial, anti-colonial way um, that there is something transformative about them 
um, something profoundly illuminating about their teaching that goes beyond the traditional perception um, of what the Puranas are about. And um, I think I'm very grateful that you've taken the opportunity to do that because you're right. You, you got that generational moment of, okay, let's, let's now do some reflection on this. And I would just only end by thanking you because, um, and I do have to run, I wish I didn't, because um, you, uh, you are providing an opportunity for reflection, intergenerational reflection on some really important texts that I think a lot of people will benefit from. So pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for appearing on the podcast. And for those of you who've been listening, we've been speaking with uh, Dr. Laurie L. Patton, Professor of Religions and President of Middlebury College. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, keep listening, and keep contemplating uh, the importance of educational administration, among other things. Take care. <laughs> Thank you, Roger. It was really delightful to speak with you today. Yeah.